This week on Merchants of Change, we've got Mike Palladino. Mike played football for the Trinity College Bantams before getting started in sales at VM Turbo back in 2015. He spent the past seven years at PandaDoc, where he started as an AE and finished as VP of Sales. Here he is, Mike Palladino. I'm J.R. Butler, co-founder of The Shift Group, and you're listening to Merchants of Change. This is a podcast about transferring the skills and behaviors we acquire as athletes into being a professional technology salesperson. Each week, we'll introduce you to a top performer who will help us understand how they became professional merchants of change. What's up, kid? How we doing, Mike? Doing great, JR. Really happy to be here. How are things with you today? I'm good, man. Pumped, pumped to have you on the show. Uh, we got Mike Palladino. Um, so, Mike, just for some quick context, um, our audience is, is a lot of new sellers, folks that are transitioning into sales for the first time. Um, and our goal at Shift Group, we help elite athletes as well as military veterans transition into, you know, high paying sales jobs. Um, and, and all of our guests are former athletes uh, like yourself and who have found a ton of success in sales. So um, we always like to start with the sports career, get into the transition and then, you know, leave our audience with some, some great sales advice. So let's, let's back up here to the beginning. Um, and this is a broad question intentionally, but when I, when I ask you like, you know, favorite memories of playing sports in high school and college, what are like some of the first things that pop into your head? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, first and foremost, you know, it's the wins, right? Uh, taking a lot of hits to the head in the career. So I don't really remember specific, specific stats or one game over another, except for those wins and more specifically, uh, sharing those wins with your buddies and your teammates. Um, and, and in a genuine way, you know, it's really sharing those results with people that you really care about that I remember the most. Uh, that and the social side of things, you know, uh, long AAU weekends or uh, double sessions, you know, in the sun, uh, anywhere where there's opportunity to build camaraderie are, are really the things that I remember and, and uh, feel nostalgic about when I think about sports career, you know. Uh, th those trips when you're young are just the best, dude. The hotel room, the rug hockey, like, you know, it's it's unreal. Um, I, I heard a story about re reading letters to your teammates. What, what's that all about? Uh, yeah, that's uh, that's kind of niche, but it was it was a role that was bestowed upon me at Trinity um, as a senior, and it's kind of a locker room tradition where on the Friday before game day, everybody airs out their grievances from the previous week uh, in a public a public way, but in an anonymous way if you want. So oftentimes it's a uh, anonymous letter calling out somebody for messing up an assignment or. Uh, maybe doing something socially the weekend before that was uh, a no-no in the locker room, you know. Uh, even the opportunity to kind of give it to your coaching staff in a private way a little bit too, uh, but all with the hopes of kind of uh, agreeing to overcome your conflicts in a humorous public way in front of the team. And so um, I was fortunate enough to, as a senior, be elected as the person to uh, read those on a weekly basis. And uh, 
really, really fun and really, really proud moment, even if it sounds kind of silly from a cultural locker room side of things, you know. That's amazing. So it's like uh, football's version of uh, kangaroo court. I love that. Yeah, that's exactly right. And uh, it gets pretty humorous, too. You know, people start to get, get really, really witty with how they phrase things and who they write notes from. And uh, you start to figure out people's personal style and their humor as well. So anyway, it's like half stand-up, <laughs> half locker room stuff, you know? Uh, totally, totally. How, how do you think your uh, your teammates from Trinity would describe you? Yeah, it's a good question. It, it's definitely different from how I think my high school teammates would describe me. You know, it's obviously a, a substantial leap from high school to college competition. But um, in, in college, I think more of a role player, more of a culture guy, really. And that was great lessons for me to learn. But um, ultimately, I think that my teammates would say, First off, I was a great teammate um, and somebody who took it seriously when it was time to take things seriously, but also um, could take that serious hat off when it was time to be a friend and be, um, you know, uh, to, to, to have a role off the field as well that still contributed to that relationship. So I think that um, culturally huge boon to the team and, and really just an honest person that that is always there to uh, support my teammates, you know. Well, I, I can say as, as somebody who worked with you that that carried into your career as well. Well, thank you. All right. So, so Mike, you're, we always joke around, um, you know, people are buzzing around playing sports in college and they just can't wait to be a salesperson, right? <laughs> so obviously, you know, that is not the case. There's very l few little kids out there like, yeah, I want to be a sales guy someday. Um, so I'm curious to know, like coming out of Trinity you know, how'd you end up in sales? Were there other were there other things that you tried or explored before you ended up in sales? Yeah, absolutely. And and it's funny you say like no one actually thinks that way. It's because they don't know that what they're doing now would actually transpose perfectly to a sales career. And I certainly did not know that at the time. Um, to be frank, I was just looking for employment uh, once I graduated. And so um, the company that I'd been doing summer labor work at, 1-800-PAVEMENT, I'm sure the folks in New England have seen their trucks driving around, but um, I was a seal coder and a, a jackhammer guy in the summers. And so they uh, offered me like an operations role um, in the office and it was right out of school. Like the day after I graduated, I had to report, um, which with hindsight was foolish, but at the time seemed right. And um it was excellent from sort of a, a leadership component, right? I got to learn how to uh, work with folks who had 10, 20, 30 years more experience, but I had a little bit more authority than them in one realm where I kind of had to build the schedule and make sure that the resources were all deployed effectively to uh, uh, execute on our jobs. Uh, it was a family business though. So while I felt like I was kind of a part of a team and I felt like I could use some of the skills that I had previously in a very effective manner. Um, I knew that there was kind of a ceiling because my last name was different uh, than than the owners, right? So um, that's actually when I started over, which just sounds crazy to start over at 25, you know, uh, with hindsight right now, but um, joined a, a cold calling um, machine um, and, and finally hit my foray into, uh, into sales that way, immediately hooked. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And by the way, like, I love, I, I think everybody should do manual labor at some point in their, in their, like, youth, their teens, their 20s. Like, yeah, I grew up roofing, dude. You, you, you can, you can appreciate having to make 100 cold calls a day when you spend a 100 degree day on, on a, on a hot tar roof. 
in, you know, in New England in the summer. So I can appreciate that. That's awesome. So was your, was your first sales job hammering the phones at, at VM Turbo? It absolutely was. Um, and the only exposure I had to that was a bunch of people who had done it before saying that I'd probably be a good fit and I'd really like it. Um, and so, yeah, one day, I think I came in for a second stage interview or something like that to see the office, went down to Boylston um, and opened those doors and saw, you know, three, four hundred uh, guys and gals would felt to me in a locker room uh, going to work. And I was like, whoa, this is cool. Um, and immediately one guy pointed and was like, that guy's got good hair. We should hire him. And then all of a sudden I was like, OK, um, this is a locker room. And I really think that I could. Uh, spend my work hours in an environment like this. So that was the first sort of uh, uh, interest was was being there physically and seeing it with my own eyes and realizing, oh, okay, this is something that I'm interested in pursuing for sure. It was a, uh, you know, I don't want to like sound like an old guy yelling at the clouds, but dude, dude, it was, it was a, it was such a great culture, such a great environment for early stage salespeople. Just, I mean, all you have to do is look at the downline of people that came out of that place and what they're doing now, guys like you uh, that have gone on to like just incredibly successful careers. What do you, what, what are some things that you remember about back then, like 2015 when we were buzzing? Well, I remember the banners on the wall, you know, um, all the Celtics banners celebrating success uh, that the, the revenue performance basically was driving quarter over quarter. Um, so obviously there was an immediate connection to sports when it came to that. And I like that. Um, and then really feeling confident going into my first day after sort of our onboarding and that first call really just punching me in the face, you know, like realizing I had no idea what I was doing. Um, but I knew I was, I was interested in cracking the code, you know? Uh, so I ended up starting to do you know, practice cold calls with my dad, with my friends, anybody would listen to uh, somebody who is so ignorant about virtualization, try to <laughs> communicate something of value in a uh, cohesive way. Um, but, but ultimately, that type of work ethic is what kind of got me to very quickly once I figured things out, um, having like a high volume of positive conversations that, um, you know, maybe weren't qualified just quite as they ought to be, but certainly convincing people to take time at the very least. So I knew I had a little bit of skill once I felt comfortable, but uh, it was scary, you know, especially sitting around all those uh, those folks that seemed like they had it all figured out, even though that was probably BS with hindsight too. But, um, you know, you feel that social pressure to want to perform and that's a place where you feel comfortable when, you know, you're people like us. So. A hundred percent. Yeah. It was, um, it was learning through osmosis a lot. And, and, and I always tell people like, you got to get busy before you can get productive. So you got to mess up a bunch before you can really figure out your style and figure out what works. And we certainly had plenty of opportunity while we were there. Um, if, if, when you look back, like anything from like early days of your career, now that you're looking back at it a little bit that you potentially do over if you had the chance. You know, it's a good question. I think that to kind of keep it in the context of uh, a team environment or sort of those types of skills that you learn from competing, um, it's it specifically with that U.S. payment experience. Um, 
your loyalty really doesn't mean so much in uh, in the business world, unfortunately. And that's a lesson that I wish I had known sooner. Um, not because it would have necessarily made me change the way I was behaving or the way I was committing to a company, uh, but understanding that uh, they don't quite have that same that same uh, perspective when it comes to you as an individual generally. Um, and learning that early was actually extremely valuable uh, for the rest of my career. But um, early on, I think a lot of young people, especially people who are committed and um, accountable for their own actions. I think loyalty is a trait that comes with that. Um, and just be careful sharing that loyalty 100% because it's probably not going to be reciprocated. It might reign true in your performance um, or in your professionalism, uh, but ultimately, you know, it ain't personal, man. It's a work environment. So uh, shed that stuff early is probably a good lesson. That's a, that's really good. Really, really good. It took me honestly till my mid thirties to, to learn that lesson. And I learned it the hard way, right? Like I, you know, you give so much and you think that, you know, at the end of the day, those people have your back the way that you had their back or the organization's back. And that's not always the case. So really, really good lesson there. Um, so getting into kind of the sales portion here, right? If, if, you know, and I'm sure you're engaged with, Trinity. And so if a senior calls you, right, they're thinking about getting into sales. Um, and, and we have this happen a lot. A lot of our kids will get multiple offers. So I'm, I'm really curious to get your take here. What's your general guidance on like how, how a, a first time salesperson getting into a BDR role, um, what should they be looking for in the company that they select to start their career at? Yeah, it's a fantastic question and one that I wish that I had considered uh, when I was in these stages of my career as well. Um, that said, I think first and foremost, I'd, I'd say don't overthink it. Like you certainly have a bunch of opportunities and that's fantastic. You know, you're you're valuable in the marketplace. You're high demand, right? Um, you you want to take it seriously, but don't necessarily overthink it the way I see it. Because in my career, what I've noticed specifically in software and inside sales is that you're going to build incredible relationships with the people that you start with and the good people at the first company that you join, right? And all of that's certainly going to have an impact on you. Uh, but odds are you won't be an AE and you won't be a VP of sales at the first place that you you enter, right? So so first off, it's like, don't overthink it. Um, secondly, um, I, I think it kind of comes back to that first feeling that I had walking into the VM Turbo office, which was... Um, I saw it with my own eyes and I, I could I could sense what, you know, a day in the life of an employee was there. Um, and I'm a visual learner and I need to I need to see things. Right. So I would just encourage people to to try as much as they can to see what a working day looks like. And I know that might be harder and harder with, um, you know, virtual work environments and all of that jazz in the world we're in today. Uh, but but do anything you can to see what a day in the life of a of a average employee is. Um, try to suss out how other employees who are currently there kind of feel the same way about their day to day um, and use that as the major decision making criteria. Like, are these people happy? Do they seem like they're working hard, but they actually care about what they're doing? They're connected to a larger vision. Are there leaders at this company that when they say something to you, you believe them and other people believe them and follow them? Those are the things that I'd be looking for, the intangibles, not quite the the, the details. It's really like, is this a good team? Is this franchise moving in the right direction? Do they have leadership that I feel like care about me and will care about developing my skills and I want to serve them? Like Those are the questions I'd be asking. Um, not so much product market fit or do I have a quick path to AE or 
Um, am I getting paid the same amount as maybe some other cold callers in the market? Like those things matter when you're trying to make an ultimate decision, but they're not the things that really make the right decision. So uh, I'd stay focused on the softer side of things than the, the harder. I, I couldn't agree more. We have, we have kids that make decisions based off of a 5k gap and base salary. When, when I know deep down, I'm like, Hey, this leadership team is a much better fit for you. You're going to, you're right. going to gel here. And you're going to work for people that are going to teach you. And that first, that first leadership organization that you work underneath is so important, right? Like we just look at, like we talked about all the people that came out of Turbo because we had some, we had some some leaders there that that really gave a shit and like really helped kids start their career on the right foot. Um, I remember when you left Turbo to go to go to Panda Doc. I remember I had uh, I had coffee with your CEO uh, down. <laughs> down in uh, Panera Bread. And after I met him, I'm like, Mike, this is a cool company. Like, great job, great choice. And you had, a, you had an unbelievable run there. And I, and I knew it was going to be a great opportunity. Tell, tell us a little bit about what, the, what that run was like for you. Yeah, well, I mean, first, it's kind of why did I even want to go on that journey? And, and I got to give you props even, you know, from afar and, and a lot of other leaders there at, at VM Turbo because, uh, once I got in seat, I, I realized that I'd kind of missed the wave a little bit. You know, I saw you and I saw Yo Tom and I saw Cody and I saw a bunch of AEs, you know, and I'm kind of like, dang, like I might have just been a little late on this, like two years or so. Um, and, and what I was looking for was a place where I could be like you guys, you know, and make, make my impact on a business, be one of the first kind of sellers to actually, um, you know, throw their weight around. Um, and then, you know, potentially take on more responsibility as I could. So, uh, I saw you guys and I was like, Hey, I could connect my previous experience to this world if I'm successful as an individual contributor. So I was looking for the place to do that. And I got really, really lucky. Um, you know, in terms of finding a place where that, that came true. Um, I didn't know for sure that that was going to happen, but I, I was looking to try to experience that. Um, so anyhow, I, I started as an individual contributor there. Um, I was in my ramp doing outbound SDR work, and the qualification criteria was leaving a bunch of people on the table who actually wanted to have conversations with somebody at PandaDoc. And so I created my own little full cycle selling motion where I would source opportunities and kick those to the AE, but the ones that weren't qualified based on the criteria, I would give them a good experience and try to bring them to, to close. Um, and it wound up that there was this incredible efficient motion where I could source and close and somebody else's closing huge ACVs all from the same list of leads. Um, and so from there, the, the operations guy was like, Hey, uh, you know, you, you didn't ask for permission to do this, but it's working. So can you do it with like four or five more people? And I was like, yeah, like, didn't even think about it. I was just like, yes, I can do that. You know, uh, and uh, fortunate enough, it, it worked out. I took a bet on myself um, and, you know, ended up scaling just that puppy to like 25 or 30 people. Uh, and once that happened, you know, the founders trusted me and they were just giving me more and more opportunity to uh, do what I did well. That's amazing. It, it just shows like, you know, great players can, can be great players in any environment, but the ones that are going to really rise and shine are going to do it in in the perfect environment and PandaDoc was that for you. What do you, what do you like looking back now? Um, and I love like ask for forgiveness, not permission. Perfect. Um, but what, what do you, what else do you attribute 
your success at PandaDoc too, you think? Yeah, I mean, it, it sounds corny, but I was an East Coast guy coming into a West Coast uh, culture, which I actually liked. You know, it was going from going from VM Turbo where the guys were pretty chill. It was still a pretty hardcore um, experience, you know, uh, whereas people were wearing white tees in the office and, you know, flip flops and all that jazz. And I, I liked it. It was different, but I knew immediately that I had an edge, um, at least from a, from a work ethic standpoint. So, uh, when other folks were kind of leaning into that West coast lifestyle where the employees sort of mental health is important, it's like, yeah, of course, uh, I found a really good balance of using that type of culture. Uh, but also using it to my advantage from a performance standpoint. So um, I was outworking people immediately. Um, the other piece was I'm a I'm a pretty uh, humble person when it comes to learning. So I was just stealing stuff that was working for other people that I would hear. I wouldn't even hear how it was received on the other line. It was just like, oh, I like that. Uh, I'm going to package that into my cold calling or uh, into my full cycle sales deal. So like, Another thing is is some folks like they want to figure it out for themselves and they they want to be isolated uh, in their ramp or something like that. And I get that from like a competitive and an ownership standpoint. Um, but if you get into sales, you understand you need to diversify your opportunities and you need to try to be as flexible as possible to try things that work for you. Um, so I had that immediately as well, like no real ego when it came to uh, failing uh, or trying new things and doing that at a high rate of effort. A hundred percent, dude. And 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 like you, you made a point there. I every great like thing that I've done in sales, I stole it from somebody else and and made it my own. You know, took the good, cut out the bad, and made it my own. So like, you've got to be around people to really learn that, and that's that's awesome. What do you like looking back? What do you? What are like one or two of your favorite lessons that you've learned over the years? Oof. That's like philosophical, Jr. <laughs> uh, well, I'm thinking specifically of a sign that used to hang up at Turbo because I think it was the best <laughs> lesson that I ever learned. Well, well, that's a that's a lesson that I think a lot of people need to learn more and more as um, as it seems to me victimhood is is growing. The trend of victimhood is growing in the world these days, and um, it, it's not the way to get what you want, and it's not the way to try to improve at all. Uh, so yes, no victims was something that uh, I had learned probably before Turbo, but seeing it in a professional environment really validated uh, my own perspective on kind of how how life works. Never mind how work works. Um, and and to take that a step further, when I was in my sort of sales leadership career, started budding sales leadership career at at VM Turbo, a book that I read that kind of ties that perfectly to the business world. Uh, and for your military folks as well, um, is Extreme Ownership by Jocko Willink. I mean, it, it's just the best book when it comes to accountability and specifically personal accountability in a team environment. Um, so I highly recommend folks to read that. That changed my perspective completely on how to run a team um, and how to look in the mirror when things were going wrong. Uh, so so as an individual contributor, no victims obviously relates. It makes sense, right? I'm not going to be a victim as a seller. But then as a leader, you also take on a lot more responsibilities that aren't just carrying a bag per se. Um, and you're going to be faced with a lot of other non-performance related uh, opportunities to show um, how you how you can be personally accountable for any problems that are happening in your team. So um, 
And, and people respond to that so well. Like if you're a humble leader who can admit when they're wrong, it's almost like a journalist. It's like you just want to trust that this person is saying what they think is true. Um, and, and if they're wrong, they'll admit it. Um, so it's sort of this combination of never uh, being a victim, always looking in the mirror first and foremost, um, and taking accountability in situations where maybe you could have done something different to change an outcome. It's it literally one of my favorite books ever. I've read it twice. Um, and, and Mike and I are referencing, there used to be a huge sign over the sales floor at Turbo that said no victims. And, and it, it stuck with me. I think I grew up with it as a hockey coach as a dad, right? Like you come from a blue collar, you come from a blue collar background and that's what you're taught. Like, you, you know, you're not entitled to anything. You, no one cares, work harder, right? Um, and and the, my biggest lesson from extreme ownership as a, like a middle manager was like when somebody above me makes a decision and I don't agree with it, but I still roll it down to my, that's on me as the middle manager. I can't point a finger at the CEO and say, well, this is a mistake. Um, if, if, if I have to own that, I, and, and I have to be the person that's, that at least stands for, hey, this is why I think this is wrong. And if they still want to go do that thing, which, you know, we, we witness that a lot in our experience, then, then it's on you. You've got to own that. So, dude, I'm glad you mentioned that book. It's you're, so you're, good. You're right. And one other thing on the middle management piece, because that, that resonates in a major way, but not only are you going to have to own it and then deliver it, but, but how do you navigate those tough managing up conversations too, when it's like, Hey, I don't, I don't understand this or I can't own this. And that's a subtle skill as well. Um, you need to always feel comfortable being honest and speaking your mind upward. And that's how you're going to build a brand that is trusted, you know, as a leader. Uh, but that said too, putting the pressure on, your leaders to explain to you why are we doing this is a very, very good way to then at least say, okay, I'm going to have to swallow a pill here and I'm going to have to lead a bunch of people into something that maybe I don't 100% agree with, but at least I know why I'm doing it. And then I can communicate downward why it fits into a larger vision. And provided that something is connected to the goal that we've been trying to, uh, you know, uh, pitch or, or, uh, um, drive, drive, you know, uh, results towards, um, at least it's connected to a larger vision. And it's not just like, oh, this is a one-off crazy harebrained idea. It puts you in a position where you can sell it down better. Um, and, and perhaps you'll have a better attitude about doing the actual work too. Yeah. And it's also good, you know, this is good for first time leaders that are listening to this is like, if, if there's multiple scenarios where they they roll out a new strategy and you make a really good argument as why it's not a good strategy and they still do it anyway and they don't change it until they learn that it didn't work and that keeps happening then it's good to pay attention like okay these leaders you know I call it like the emperor's new clothes they want people that are going to be around them that are going to agree with everything they say and and at a certain point it's like okay is this is this a place that I want to be too right so having that extreme ownership is a really good way to to evaluate the people you're surrounding yourself with. Um, yeah. So dude, so let's shift gears a bit. Let's talk about skills development. Um, I, and, and I believe this, right? This is going to be, this is going to be a tough year. One of our, one of our themes this year in my business is tough times don't last, tough people do. Um, what do you think when you look at the, the individual contributors out there, what, what skill are the best reps going to have that are going to come out of this shining over the next 12 months? 
Well, I, I think it's a good place to kind of focus on the the attitude that it takes to be a solid seller. The the main the the mind the mindset that it requires, which is one of resilience and like immense grit, right? Um, and any sales leader going into this year, or you know, any recession for that point, um, grit are the grit and and performance. That combination, those are the ones that never get touched when um, when markets start to get uh, impacted by external things, right? So um, you got to check those boxes. If there's not a ton of opportunity to perform, you know, you're a new hire, uh, you're trying to prove yourself, and you're not really you don't have the skill set, but you have the grit. It's like show that grit, you know, take on more, um, you know, be be really noisy about your own development. Start to try to figure out who are the mentors in your in your org that, you know, are going to make it that um, can maybe teach you a thing or two um, about what it takes to to always be in the top 20 percent, which is really where you need to be um, to have 100 percent job security um, in a business that's performing. So I, I would say lean into legit development uh the skills that you can that you can acquire now it's an opportunity to learn more because you're not necessarily um hitting the phones uh, trying to hit 140 dials per se in like a, a calculated way that might be a waste of your time so perhaps it's it's like maybe make 70 or 80 calls uh and then spend that additional time being a sponge that's actually something that i should have done more at my time at turbo was figure out mentorship opportunities from people there um and i think i kind of fit the rule more of trying to figure it out for myself and being isolated at VM Turbo. And that was a mistake. Um, if, if I hadn't, I would have had great relationships with people who didn't necessarily work with me or work with me in a direct capacity like yourself. Um, and, and imagine the network opportunities that I would have now when I need them. You know, Had I previously um, thought a little bit more uh, strategically about my career over a long period of time. So that's another thing is like, don't get caught up in this tunnel where, oh my goodness, things are so hard. It's like, hey, your career is going to be 40, 50 years. You know, uh, if you're lucky, only 30, <laughs> but like you're going to be doing this for a long, long time. Um, so, so don't, don't get it twisted. Like the next shot's going to go in um, and just stay focused, keep your stick on the ice, you know, um, and look for opportunities to learn um, when it's famine out there. Absolutely. And, and, and it, and also like having that no victim mindset is going to be important right. this year because, we're all playing on the same ice. Everybody's everybody's calling companies with less budget, right? Less time for you, and and only want to buy nice to have. So that's that. It is what it is, right? You got to kind of deal with it, and and spending that time around those people you can learn from right now is a huge opportunity. And 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 you know, I guess we always kind of talk about mentorship, and it sounds like one regret is you, you wish you kind of leaned into that a little bit more. But I, I'm sure you had some mentors in your career that had a meaningful impact on your on you um can you highlight one of your, one of your mentors for us and what you learned from them yeah i mean the, the first one was uh was this gentleman named taft love who hired me at PandaDoc. he was a sales ops guy but he came from a background of being a cop like he was a detective in south carolina before uh he got into his foray in SaaS. and so uh that type of person who had a really really strategic mindset uh, but came from a more blue collar background, had like the type of perspective that I really respect in a leader. So he was certainly one of them. Uh, but the biggest mentor I had was our CRO, uh, Nate Gilmore, who um, I had the pleasure of being on the hiring committee for. Um, and once he joined, like 
not only turbocharged our business, but gave me um, perspective uh, again that that allowed me to kind of think more critically about um, the VP sales type of a role, or even a CRO role, or a GM role. Um, and you know, he he calls himself a hippie capitalist, which is kind of the perfect blend of what I think my culture has become from a salesperson. It's like East Coast born and bred, but kind of made my bones on the West Coast. So I, I feel. I feel kind of like a, a very similar balance there. Um, and without him, you know, I, I certainly would not be uh, the leader that I am today. And I know for a fact, Panadoc would not be where it was either. So great teammate um, and a great boss. And like, that's what you're kind of looking for in a mentor. He was my direct, my direct boss, but also a fantastic mentor. So uh, shout outs to Nate as well. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, you, you, you've, so your track record, Panda Doc, Rocket Ship, Turbo Rocket Ship, um, and 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 it, it, you 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 made the statement which I loved. You like I got lucky, right? Because I always tell people anybody anybody who went to an organization that ended up being you know a unicorn or or having like an amazing exit, if they don't give credit a little bit of credit to luck, then they're full of shit, right? Um, so I'm the same way, but but now I'm a little bit older. I can look back uh, with some knowledge and, and, and I can kind of look at what Turbo was and I'm like, yeah, it checked all these boxes and that's what made it a $2 billion organization, right? Now, real quick, before we kind of close out, picking a rocket ship early in your career is a game changer. We all know that, right? We've seen all most CROs, VPs of sales, at one point they picked the right company. Looking back now, what do you think makes... Like, what are like three or four characteristics of an early stage company that you're like, this, this has, this has potential to be a rocket ship, to be a unicorn? What, like, what are you looking at? Oof. Well, I mean, PandaDoc was really early stage, right? When I joined. So I was employee number like 35. Um, so, so for that, it was, is there green pasture here? Like that, first and foremost, like, is there opportunity for me to do something? Uh, so you, you got to do that from like a selfish standpoint. And then from there, it's like, do I feel like I trust the people and the message that they're giving? Like, to be frank, CEOs and founders are going to create these incredibly uh, vivid vision statements and mission statements that are going to sound ridiculous, you know, up front. But can you drill into some of the more personal skills of these leaders and understand what their character is like is, is really where I was trying to evaluate. Um, the other thing too is just kind of back to the first the first sort of topic we were discussing. It's like the leaders in the company, if there are some there, um, evaluating them because they were in the same shoes as you. Like, why did they choose the company? You know, so like you you have some data sets, some data points that you can mine if you're talking to folks that you feel like you trust or you might want to follow. Um, the other thing too is like just asking people why they're motivated to do what they do. Um, that are currently employed at that company, right? If the answer is uh, some altruistic thing, then it's like, okay, you know, maybe I don't necessarily trust that. But if the person says, hey, man, I got an opportunity to crush it and do exactly what I want to do here, uh, and I trust that guy over there to keep that dream alive, you know, like super high level uh, are, are the things that I was evaluating uh, because the people are the are the reason that rocket ships exist, right? Like, sure. The, the product market fit is the product actually doing what it says it does. Obviously important. Every seller needs to check those boxes. But when it comes to choosing the rocket ship, it's those other things that um, that stand out. The people, 
um, the things that they say and doing what they say. So again, accountability, ownership of people's words, strong leadership, um, and, and really like keeping it simple is, is really another huge thing for early stage startups. If things seem too complex, um, chances are, uh, they're too complex. You know, if it looks and smells like, you know what, I'm not going to taste it. So, um, you know, just keep your, keep your eyes, your nose and your ears open as well. Trust your instincts, but, uh, it's mostly people. I, I, I couldn't agree more. There's, there's a million technology companies that we've never heard of that had product market fit. They had unique differentiation. You know, they had all those little, those little tangible, uh, ingredients to be a unicorn. And nobody ever heard of them uh, because they didn't execute and, and people execute, not technology. So I couldn't agree more. All right, dude, last two questions. Um, we always ask every, every guest these two. Um, the first is we want you to highlight a skill that makes you an elite seller. What do you think your elite selling skill is? <laughs> well, uh, I almost stepped on this answer when you were talking about luck because, uh, I agree with you. Like you got to be humble and you got to say you're lucky, but you also had, um, you had a, you, you had an impact on your own, uh, your own outcome. So it's a mix of those two things. Um, so what I would say is, is actually <laughs> manifesting luck, which is a skill. Like this is a real thing. Uh, I don't mean that like a general definition. It's like the classic definition, like luck is where preparation meets opportunity. So if you're preparing, and you know where opportunities exist, you can create your own luck a little bit. Um, and you can increase your odds of winning uh, by working hard, always trying to uh, be in places where opportunity knocks. For example, for the hockey guys, right? Uh, I could not skate to save my life. And, you know, uh, I love playing hockey for the social reasons in Arlington. Everybody plays hockey like you got to. Um, but I scored goals. Like I scored a lot of goals. And the reason I did that was because a coach of mine said, good things happen when you put the puck on net. And it's like, okay, so if I'm prepared to shoot and I'm aggressively seeking opportunities to simply put the puck on net, uh, from a competitive perspective, I'm creating luck. Um, and that, if, when you miss the net or you miss the goalie, uh, or sorry, the goalie saves it, you know, um, as a scorer, you need to think about the next shot going in. So it's also, it's also having a quick memory and forgetting things that don't matter. Um, but manifest luck. And if it doesn't happen, just, just keep that stick on the ice and put them on net. You know, if, if you didn't believe it already, there's proof that our East coast boys spent some time on the West coast with the use of manifest. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Um, so dude, you were, you probably remember this from turbo, but I'm big on like, just because you're not a professional athlete doesn't mean you're not a professional. And I, and I, and I really, every time I've led teams and I do it now with our kids, it's like, Hey, you got to approach this like a profession. And, and I think the, the, the highest praise you can give someone is calling them a, a pro. This is a sales pro. So just tell us what, what does being a pro in sales mean to you? Well, being a pro, I think first you got to kind of try to observe what you think a pro looks like and start to kind of define that, right? You obviously know what a professional athlete looks like, but um, you might not know what a professional seller looks like specifically early in your career. So um, create some heroes, you know, point to some guys or gals that you see um, and try to mimic their behavior, um, even if that's from afar. So first you got to define it, I think, for yourself, because obviously it's, it's kind of amorphous um, in general, like what's a pro seller? Uh, but then it comes down to actual like tactics, right? Like 
10,000 hours to mastery, I think is like a really, really good idea. Like you got to do something for a very, very long time before you're going to master it. Uh, but the real lesson in that is like deliberate work over busy work, like staying focused on the things that you need to work on or that are working. Um, you don't need to be a huge hardo, uh, but like, you know, have that work hard, play hard mentality. Just make sure you're doing the work uh, that is focused. So work smart and hard, not work smart, not hard. Work smart and hard, I would say. Um, we already kind of touched on personal accountability. Uh, so again, extreme ownership. Like I, I think that you even see this in, in professional sports, like the, the folks that I, uh, admire in, in professional sports are usually the people who take ownership of losses or, uh, take ownership of bad plays or coaches that protect their teammate, uh, their players when they made a mistake. Right. So, um, I'm looking for that, that personal accountability in the people. Um, that I surround myself around because in my opinion, that is a professional trait um, it, to identify opportunities for growth, uh, both in yourself and others. Uh, and then lastly, which kind of ties into the accountability piece is actually humility. Um, so certainly always be closing um, and don't lose your confidence at all, but um, always be closing, but really always be learning. Um, if you aren't constantly stealing, if you're not practicing, uh, you're not putting your own spin on things, uh, you're going to grow complacent, you know, because of pride. And I think a lot of people experienced that the last two years in the marketplace where, uh, you know, COVID was inflating performances in a lot of ways. And, um, you know, people people got a little too comfortable. And, you know, I think you're seeing that experience on the other end when folks are getting laid off and wondering why. Uh, it's probably because you were a little too proud. Um, so anyway, by, pride is the source of all sin. So keep that in mind. Uh, humility is the source of all improvement. So if you want to remain a high performer, you must constantly improve. Therefore, you must be humble as well. I'm going to cut, I'm going to cut this clip up and I'm going to tag every single LinkedIn influencer who's been a BDR for 18 months that, that gives advice out. Cause I couldn't agree more, Mike. That was awesome. Got me fired up, buddy. Dude, <laughs> un unbelievable combo, Mike. Thank you so much for your time, pal. We, we really appreciate it. We got another required listening episode for our candidates. So thank you so much, dude. Uh, same here, man. It's an honor. And if there's anybody out there listening that, that wants to take the conversation any further, like hit me up on LinkedIn. I'm happy to chat with anybody in the network. Love it. This wraps up this episode of Merchants of Change. If you enjoyed this episode, the most meaningful way to say thanks is to submit a review wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're interested in working with us, please come find us at www.shiftgroup.io.